From the Carlson Law Firm, welcome to Season 2 of The Verdict, a podcast about how personal injury law shapes the real lives of average Americans. I'm your host, Keisha Conway. Todd Kelly, I am a partner at the Carlson Law Firm, and I run the North Austin office of our firm. Todd, thank you for joining us. We're super glad to have you here on The Verdict. Let's just start this off with you giving us a succinct description of what drunk driving is. Sure. Technically, it's called driving while intoxicated or driving under the influence. And it can actually include both alcohol or other drugs that impair the body and mind. Uh, It involves, uh, again, impairing the mind to the point that reflexes and senses are slowed, making the driver a danger to him or herself and others. Uh, In Texas, uh, we typically measure a person's blood alcohol content to determine whether they're driving under the influence. And if they're a .08 or above, they're considered impaired. How do drunk driving cases differ from other types of car crashes? Typically, with a drunk driving case, because the reactions are slowed, the ability for the driver to minimize the impacts of a crash are also minimized. And so combined with the fact that Impaired drivers are typically fearless when they're intoxicated. Uh, makes people inclined to drive faster, and that makes the cases more devastating from an injury standpoint than the normal negligence cases. It's actually not uncommon for there to be a police report indicating intoxication and sometimes a conviction, which changes the way that the cases are pursued. How do convictions change the way of a case is pursued? So a conviction in a criminal court uh, actually uh, can be considered evidence and actually conclusive evidence in a civil case. Because the burden of proof is higher in a criminal trial, that being uh, proof beyond a reasonable doubt, than it is in a civil case, which only calls for preponderance of the evidence. When there's been a conviction, that conclusively establishes that the person was drunk and therefore negligent driving in the civil case. What are the types of injuries that you see from these cases? They really run the gamut, but frequently, you know, the drunk driver um, is not even aware that the crash is happening. So their natural instinct of tensing up and preparing for impact is not there. And that actually helps them to avoid injury, while the victim, who might see the crash coming, will tense up, anticipating the impact. And that body posture and that tenseness can actually uh, increase the level of injury and the, the type of injury that the victim sustains. But again, just like anything else, uh, there are a lot of factors that go into it, the drinking just being one of them. Legally speaking, what kind of issue is drunk driving? So drunk driving is both a civil and a criminal wrong. Um, the driver you know, criminally can be punished and fined, uh, sometimes even put in jail, but that doesn't do anything to help the devastated victim. And so the civil uh, court system is used, therefore, to... Uh, pursue a personal injury negligence case against that driver uh, so that they can compensate for the harms and losses that the victim has suffered. Why are people entitled to filing lawsuits? Well, civil lawsuits were actually envisioned by our founding fathers when they drafted the Seventh Amendment to our Constitution. Um, Even then, they recognized that people are hurt by the wrongful acts of others. And so when we're talking about drunk driving, obviously we didn't have Uh, motorized vehicles at that time, uh, but we certainly had negligence. And our founding fathers recognized that when people hurt others by by their own negligence, that there should be a court system to redress those wrongs. 
Uh, we'd certainly rather have those wrongs redressed in the courtroom as opposed to, you know, with guns strapped to our hips at high noon. Uh, and so that's, that's kind of why we have the system that we have, and, and it allows people to be compensated for the losses that they suffered because of others. What can a person be compensated for? There are a number of, of different types of compensation. Uh, typically what we're looking at is, you know, the medical bills, the lost wages, the loss of life, if that happens, the loss of the enjoyment of life. A lot of times the injuries change a person so much that they really are not even the same person after a crash that they were before, and certainly are not as capable sometimes as they were before. So you talk about um, injuries in terms of medical bills, injuries in terms of lost income, uh, lost potential income. You also talk about significant pain, and a lot of people don't recognize how bad an injury pain can be. Um, but when you're living with constant pain and you see how that affects every other aspect of your life, I think people start to realize that pain is a significant issue and it is, um, it is something that is compensated uh, through our civil justice system. What is the range of medical bills that you've seen? Well, I've seen very minimal injuries um, caused by drunk driving all the way up to uh, you know, life-threatening and even death uh, and cases where the bills are in excess of a million dollars. Um, and so really they run the gamut. Um, but you know, I've also seen cases where the bills themselves may not be uh, particularly significant, but the harm uh, is still life-threatening. Like for instance, a, a traumatic brain injury, a lot of times the medical bills themselves are not very high because there's only so much that can be done to try to help that person. But the devastating damage that the person has suffered is still there and the life has been changed. So when a client comes to you and they are wanting to file a lawsuit, who is it that they are suing? Usually the driver of the other vehicle who was drunk at the time. But sometimes, uh, in some cases, there's another person who allowed that person uh, to get behind the wheel through either negligence or sometimes even intent. Um, and sometimes you actually find that a, uh, a driver may have been intentionally or knowingly overserved at a bar or a restaurant. And so people that allow a drunk driver behind the wheel, um, they understand that risk, they understand what they're doing, and if they have an obligation to stop that, whether by law or just by common law, um, then those people sometimes are targets of lawsuits as well. Okay, so um, it sounds like you're talking about dram shop. Can you explain what dram shop laws are? Sure, dram shop laws in general are laws that are intended to hold bars and restaurants responsible when they overserve patrons, uh, and those patrons then go out and hurt someone. Um, unfortunately, those laws have been severely limited in recent years due to legislation pushed by both those bars and restaurants and their insurance industry, um, which actually disguises itself under the name of Texans for Lawsuit Abuse, um, or law Texans for Lawsuit Reform, excuse me. But uh, that's a topic for another day. But uh, mostly these dram shop laws are intended, initially at least, to prevent the overserving of patrons, which is a known risk to all of us on the roads. Can these types of laws be applied to individual bartenders? Technically, yes, but frequently individual bartenders don't have the assets to take care of and pay for the harm that they've caused. And so, as kind of mentioned earlier, if, if a bartender is certified uh, by the Texas Alcohol and Beverage Commission, TABC, 
Um, they have what's called uh, a safe harbor, which will protect the establishment, um, essentially providing immunity uh, unless we can show uh, some very specific and sometimes unprovable facts about the reasons for the overserving. What are some of the defenses that a bar or restaurant can mount? Uh, the main one is, as I just mentioned, the safe harbor, harbor provisions uh, for TABC certified servers, uh, which provides immunity to establishments. Um, and that's the primary defense that we see in these cases. Um, uh, our investigators at the Carlson Law Firm um, are s sometimes able to pierce that by showing that the overserving was actually encouraged by the owners, uh, either by incentives or sometimes just verbally um, telling the bartender that they needed to sell more alcohol. Uh, if we're able to show that, um, that that would break the immunity and we would be allowed to proceed against the establishment at that point in time. Um, but typically, that is the primary defense. Do you have any recent drunk driving cases or one that's significant enough that you can tell us about? Sure. I, there's several, but one that is kind of near and dear to my heart is a, a classmate and former um, high school football teammate of mine who recently reached out to me because he and his wife um, were involved in a drunk driving collision. He was injured fairly significantly, but his wife was killed, leaving behind um, their children and of course, my friend in a very devastated state, they were simply returning from an out-of-town trip with family, uh, driving in late at night when the, uh, when the collision occurred. Mm. Can you give us a bit of background about like what the drunk driver was doing, if you have that information? Well, the driver himself was killed, okay. um, and we were not able to locate any kind of uh, credit receipts or anything like that to know where he was coming from. Uh, his family did not seem to know where he was coming from. Um, what we do know is that he had uh, over twice the legal limit um, of blood alcohol content. Um, he swerved out of his lane, oncoming uh, lane of traffic uh, where m my friend and his wife were driving. Um, and he was killed on the scene. And, um, and so I actually don't know the details of where he was coming from. Mm -hmm. uh, that is the kind of case we were talking about earlier. If I had been able to find credit card receipts, if, the, if they had had credit card receipts, uh, we would have gone back to the establishment and looked for uh, ways to show whether or not they should have known and stopped serving him. In that case, how are you able to help the client? In that case, um, my friend had um, uh, an insurance policy of underinsured motorist coverage. Um, as well as the uh, defendant driver's insurance. And so while it really it pales in comparison to what the loss is, um, the insurance policies were tendered uh, and have been paid. And uh, you know they certainly allow for some of the loss. Um, I, I don't know that there's ever a number you can put on a loss of a, of a wife and a mother, um, but there's certainly an economic component to that with respect to not only burial expenses, uh, but also just the, uh, the economic contributions that she made to the family, uh, both as a housewife and as a working mom. And it was, uh, unfortunately, that's, that's what we deal with when we see these cases. Every story, this one happens to be personal and close to home for me, but every story is personal and close to home to someone. And, um, and they are heartbreaking. So when did your friend know that he needed to seek the assistance of an attorney? It's interesting. My friend actually works in the insurance industry and, wow. and initially thought he could handle it himself. 
Um, a lot of people do. Mm -hmm. uh, a lot of people, whether they work in the insurance industry or not, they, they think that, oh, this is, they'll do the right thing. Um, in my friend's case, uh, he recognized it pretty early on that they were not going to be straight with him. Uh, and he called me within weeks of, of the crash. Um, but frequently what happens is uh, people try to resolve these cases on their own. And only when they hit a number of roadblocks and realize that they're not being treated fairly, do they finally call a lawyer. You mentioned that his wife passed. Did he suffer any injuries? He did. He was in the hospital with some neck and back uh, sprain strain for actually several days, but uh, ultimately has predominantly recovered. Uh, he's back to work and able to function. So, um, you know, it's, it's kind of, it gets a little bit semantic as to what's an injury when you lose your wife. Right. I know for me, I don't think I could recover very easily from that. How many cases like these have you handled? So I've been doing this work for about 24 years, and I honestly don't have a specific number to give you, but it's in the hundreds. Okay, wow. To hear that, like, it's really sad because it's it, like this is such a, it's an act that's so dangerous and that is so, it's so talked about that it's hard to understand why people are still out here drinking and then driving. You know, it's interesting. Um, I incidentally am also the uh, director of the local advisory board to the local area of MAD, mm -hmm. Mothers Against Drunk Driving. And one of the things that I think we talk about probably at every meeting is how uh, unbelievable it is that despite all of the media campaigns, despite all of the knowledge, despite everything that has been done to try to curtail this, people just don't stop and people don't seem to understand that not only do they risk their own you know, arrests and fines and loss of privilege, but they run the risk of killing other people, which I don't know how the people that have done that actually live with that decision. On that note, <laughs> um, you're a fantastic trial attorney. How often do you have to take these sorts of cases to trial? First of all, thank you for the compliment. Um, and the truth is that at this point in time, almost never, but not because they're not trial worthy and not because we don't prepare them for trial. Quite the opposite, it's because we do. Um, and I think after having done it as long as we've done it and when the insurance companies realize that we actually will try a case and we are prepared to try a case, and they understand the risk that they're up against. They don't want that tra case tried. And so for that reason, usually at some point prior to actually giving an opening statement in a courtroom, the insurance company will come to a realistic number and will resolve the case. Okay. Do insurance policy limits need to be taken into consideration when, when a client is looking for compensation? Yeah, we have to look at the insurance policy um, for a couple of reasons. One of them is um, there's a, a doctrine in Texas law anyway that's called the Stowers Doctrine, which is based upon a case um, which uh, basically requires an insurance company to act in good faith with respect to its insured. And so in a nutshell, what that means is we have to give the insurance company an opportunity 
to settle the case within the policy limits. And so you've got to know what those limits are. Um, and sometimes it can be um, a little bit frightening and a little bit scary. But uh, as an example, I have a case right now uh, of a woman who was injured in a traumatic, she suffered a traumatic brain injury in one of these crashes. And we sent our demand pursuant to this case to try to resolve the case um, without having to file a lawsuit. There was only a $30,000 policy. Her medical bills far exceeded that, and her life change was exorbitantly more money than that. But uh, the insurance company in, that, in this case, which happened to be State Farm, uh, offered us $5,600 to settle the case. It, so we had to consider, to answer your question, we had to consider the $30,000 but once they failed to act reasonably by offering $5,600, what they did is they blew the lid off of that policy and made themselves responsible, not directly to my client, but really directly to the defendant who may be responsible to pay any verdict that we get. And as a result of that, um, usually what happens is companies will step in and say, yeah, we blew it and we're gonna be responsible for whatever that verdict is. In this case, what they could have settled and should have settled for $30,000 will probably cost them in the seven-figure to eight-figure range. Wow. Um, what should a person do if they or a loved one were injured by a drunk driver? The very first thing that you need to do if you're injured by a drunk driver is get medical attention. I don't want to tell you that your legal remedies are not important. They are, but you have two years to pursue them. Um, so the first thing to do is get medical help, get your injuries treated, do not speak with the other driver's insurance company. Um, this is their opportunity to try to diminish the value of your case. Um, they will record the statement. Um, they make it seem like it's just part of business as usual. But what they're really doing is trying to get a statement from you now that is in some way, no matter how small, inconsistent with the statement that you will later give in your sworn deposition testimony to essentially call you a liar. And so before you speak to anyone else about the case, you should call an attorney. Obviously, I'd like you to call the Carlson Law Firm, and particularly me, but uh, the truth of the matter is, anytime that you have one of these cases, you need a qualified personal injury trial lawyer to assist you. What would you say to people who say that, you know, you can handle a car crash case of, of any kind by yourself? There's an old adage that, even for lawyers, the lawyer who represents himself has a fool for a client. Um, for the non-lawyer who tries to do it and is not familiar with the tricks of the insurance company, um, I think that it is a foolish move. Um, I think that it is um, unwise. I wouldn't attempt to wire the electricity in my house because I don't have an idea what I'm doing. Um, the practice of law is complicated. I don't want to say it's more or less complicated than wiring the electricity in my house because I don't know how to wire the electricity <laughs> in my house. And I should not attempt that. Somebody that doesn't know the ins and the outs of the legal industry should not attempt to dissolve their own lawsuit. Okay. Um, so what should a person not do after a drunk a driving crash? Um, I'm actually kind of glad you asked it again because it really is that important. Do not talk to the insurance company. Um, your insurance company, you may have an obligation to do that. But the insurance company of the drunk driver, do not talk to them, ever. Okay. Um, 
What are the signs that a person should seek help from a drunk driving attorney? Um, so, interesting. I would not use that label. Um, and I say that because I would use the label personal injury attorney. Um, and, and the reason is because as a personal injury attorney, um, it's there's a lot of different things that we do. A drunk driving attorney actually might include a criminal defense attorney. Right. So, um, but I would say that if you're if you're injured and you didn't cause it, seeking help from a personal injury attorney costs you nothing. Um, if the personal injury attorney doesn't take the case, if we don't take your case, uh, we don't charge you for that consultation. So. I would say as soon as you're able to do so and have taken care of your medical situation, call an attorney. It costs you nothing to seek the help. A lot of times um, we will give advice whether we take the case or not. And if we take the case, there's a reason that we take the case and it's because we think that there's something that we can do to help you. Why should a person consider filing a lawsuit? So the lawsuit itself, I, I wouldn't file it unless there's a inability to get the case resolved short of litigation. Um, it's cheaper and frequently results in a greater amount of uh, settlement money going into the client's hands if you can resolve it short of filing a lawsuit. But filing a claim, I think, is something that you should do with your lawyer's help um, because you have expenses that you probably don't even realize yet um, if you haven't been through this or known someone who's been through it. It is very, very common for uh, injuries to develop over time uh, and to worsen over time, something that you think is just a stiff neck today might end up being a nerve injury that requires you to have surgery in six months. Um, so I would say let your lawyer make this decision in consultation with other uh, healthcare professionals and, and so forth. What steps should a person take after a crash? If you're able to do so at the scene, if you're not so injured that you can't, I would identify witnesses, even if it's nothing more than just a license plate number that we can run down later, because a lot of times um, the police officer who arrives at the scene after the fact is only going to write down what he's told and may not write it all down. But the eyewitnesses who actually saw the crash can testify about what actually happened. And you'd be amazed how many times we have cases and the only witnesses that we have that we know about by the time we get to trial are the drunk driver and the injured person. Um, so I would do that. But then, as I said before, the most important thing is get the medical attention that you need. Um, do not, under any circumstances, tell anyone at the scene of a crash that you are not hurt. Um, the reason that you shouldn't do that is because those words will be used against you. An adrenaline rush is a real thing. Um, the adrenaline will mask the pain, it will mask an injury, and I've, I can't tell you the number of people that I've represented who have said, I'm not hurt at the scene, only to later have find out that they have a herniated discs that are causing a need for surgery because they have radiating pain down into their arms and legs when the adrenaline wears off. Um, and then I would, again, after getting medical attention, I would call a personal injury lawyer, be silent about the case, except to your lawyer. You mentioned that you also serve on the board for MAD. Why are these types of cases important? Insurance companies have more resources and political influence than most people can even imagine. Um, 
Our veterans uh, have fought and died for centuries to protect the rights guaranteed to us by our Constitution. But greed has guided the insurance industry and created a system that most people just don't understand. Most don't even care to know about it until they find themselves caught into it by a serious injury or death to someone close to them. For the first time then, they realize just how much the cards are stacked against them. So I do this because people need help. I do it because I believe that um, to protect the most important values of our nation, we have to hold wrongdoers accountable in courts of law. That's a system that I swore to defend when I was commissioned as a Marine officer, and it's the same system I swore to defend when I took an oath as an attorney. We protect people. We do that because we care. That's an underlying motivation at the Carlson Law Firm, and it's the one that drives me. Todd, is there anything else that you would like to add? I don't think so. I appreciate your time today. Oh, thank you. Visit us at carlsonattorneys.com to read more information about drunk driving. We'd also love for you to leave us a review wherever you get your podcast. Don't forget to subscribe and recommend us to your friends. You can also find us on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram by searching The Carlson Law Firm. As always, if you're in need of a personal injury attorney, give us a call at 1-800-359-5690. We are available 24 hours a day, 7 days a week. We care, and we can help. <laughs>